Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello, Dario. Thanks so much for joining us podcast. Uh, such an honor to have you. Thank you very much for uh, having me here. It's a pleasure. So I would like to ask you first how we would like to define who you are uh, for the audience maybe first listening to you. Yeah, uh, so I'm a professor at the uh, uh, Ecole Polytechnique Fédérale de Lausanne, EPFL, in uh, Switzerland. And um, my field of activities is uh, uh, intelligent robotics. It's a big word, intelligence, especially. Robotics, maybe we know what it is, but intelligence, maybe it's more, it's harder to define. But uh, yeah, I'm the director of the Laboratory of Intelligence Systems. And um, I've also the pleasure of being the director of the Swiss National Center of Competence in Robotics for the past uh, 11 years. Uh, it's uh, the largest uh, funding program in Switzerland that brings together the top uh, laboratories in Switzerland uh, doing research in robots. And there we, um, we carry out the research in wearable robots, in mm -hmm. mobile robots, and in educational robots. Plus, we set up educational programs, technology transfer. But that's, that's a broader topic. So I'm curious to ask you first, since you mentioned about intelligent robot, what's still missing maybe if you speak about robotics and soft robotics in terms of intelligence or embedded intelligence? What's still missing from your experience? Yeah, there has been this uh, search for the missing juice since uh, Rodney Brooks used this word many years ago. Um, the, uh, I probably there are, there is a lot of progress to be done, and there is there is there is stuff that we need to add. There is what I want to say is that today there is so much uh, uh, activity in robotics uh, and uh, in intelligent robotics that it's never been the case over the past at least 30 years that I've been in research. And there are so many different approaches that people use to uh, develop intelligent machines that probably somebody is already investigating different missing bits and pieces. It's just they, we have to bring them together. But uh, one of the things that uh, probably is mostly trending these days and uh, uh, some of the previous speakers have touched upon is the fact that it, we do not distinguish anymore between artificial intelligence and robotics or machines as it used to be in the past. And by the past, I mean 20 years ago, and maybe some people still do it. And even in my lab, some people are more doing hardware and other people are doing more mainly uh, artificial intelligence. But, but today there is an understanding uh, that uh, an intelligent machine is a machine that is co-designed, where brain and the bodies are co-designed or co-evolved in a sense. And there are plenty of examples of how you can design or build a, a physical body or, or a machine so that it simplifies um, the, the computational problem. Uh, so so that, that's what I would call an intelligent machine these days. It's, it's, it's a machine that has some level of autonomy in making decisions, and it could be sensory motor decisions. Yeah, I'm not sure about decision is the right word, by the way, but there mm -hmm. could be uh, simple sensory motor processes that are autonomous. They're not completely pre-programmed. So there is a level of interaction with the physical environment, with the physical world that uh, the machine is capable of, of coping with. 
And since this interaction with the physical world is very hard to model, free, often, and even if it's modeled, it's modeled only in very specific situations, it requires the, the robot, the intelligent robot, to have solutions to, to cope with this physical environment. So that, that's what I would call the minimal intelligent, intelligent machine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then uh, when we look at the, uh, at the interesting, in my opinion, interesting trends these days in to make these machines, we see soft robotics, soft materials, or compliant materials, um, or multifunctional materials. Uh, on the one side is very promising technologies on, on the body size, if you like. And, and then we have all this learning and evolutionary approaches and self-organizing approaches on, on the brain side. Mm -hmm. How the two come together, I think it's still under exploration. There, there is yeah. a lot of work going on. Yeah, I really like this point, especially about co-design, because I think the point that how we can exhibit intelligence through the bodies and, uh, and, and maybe simplify the controller or the brain side. How do you see the approaches particularly about the intelligent, intelligence exhibited through the soft bodies? Because for your experience, how do you see this kind of how we can make soft bodies that can have in physical intelligence and hence can simplify the controller or the brain side, especially in co-designs and still yeah, is not foundation for that. Yeah. So one of the things we do in the lab, or and something that has bugged me for for many years by now, is um, decoupling the the chips or the brains or the nervous system today in robots are sitting in, in a CPU, and this CPU um, can be a neuromorphic chip or it can be an FPGA, but at the end of the day, it, it is sitting somewhere separated from the rest of the body. Uh, when you look at living systems instead, they are completely innervated and, and filled with sensors and muscles are all over the place. So yes, we do have a brain, and yes, there are areas of ganglion, ganglions or uh, groups of neurons that are distributed in, in the body, in, in some animals, mm -hmm. but, but these brains and these sensors permeates the bodies and they mix with the, with the muscles. And so uh, we have been doing quite research now a bit of research in what I call sensory motor tissues. And these are artificial tissues, like we have soft tissues that uh, ideally would have muscles sensing and at least some level of processing or at least conducting signals, um, maybe with some processing yeah. or filtering to some other areas of this robotic body. And um, a very first implementation of this was a, a soft robotic gripper using uh, um, made of soft fingers that we could 3D print, and it was essentially um, dielectric elastomer, so artificial muscles encapsulated in uh, PDMS, which is a, like a soft uh, rubbery structure. Um, and the dielectric elastomer is patterned in such a way that when you uh, apply a high voltage difference, it would deform, but it would also generate electrostatic forces, um, uh, which would be allow this soft gripper to conform to objects and lift them with a very high force. At the same time, you could measure the resistance of the electrical resistance and you could infer some of the properties like proprioceptive capabilities, properties of, of the soft hands or soft grippers folding around an object. So it's a very simple instantiation of what I, I think is a, something that happens in, in our bodies that we have these sensors, mm -hmm. muscles, and, and processing intelligence on board. And, and then we have been more recently looking at, um, so we have 
continuation with the dorsal um, soft uh, fishes, um, robot fishes that use similar technology and they, they can move and swim in the water, for example. Uh, it's great work done with my former postdoc, Jun Shintak, who is now um, in, in Tokyo, an assistant professor in Tokyo. Um, another thing we are looking at just to make this embodied intelligence come together, so the brains and the bodies, we've been looking at uh, tensegrity structures. So these are uh, quite interesting mechanical structures that um, also other people in, in the robotics community have recently or have been for some time as well investigating, including the research at, at uh, NASA. Mm -hmm. So the tensegrity structure are essentially are quite interesting. They are made only of uh, elongated elements, and these are rigid bars or uh, end uh, uh, cables, and the cables are under tension. So essentially, all the cables form a network mesh, and the, and the bars are um, and the, and this mesh is under tension, and the, and the bars are. Uh, suspended within this uh, tension network. So what happens is that the, it's all elongated structures. They, the bars are under compression, compression, compressive forces by the by the mesh network, and the cables that form this mesh network are under instead uh, tensile stress. Uh, it turns out um, that and there is a beautiful article by Don Ingber uh, in Scientific American a long time ago that summarizes. This view, it turns out that as Don Ingber was saying that this could be a sort of the language or the architecture of life because we find this type of uh, structures where we have elements, elongated elements under compression and tension all the way from uh, uh, DNA particles to cells, how the cells can withstand the forces of the bodies under compression at the same time be very compliant to organs such as the lungs, to the musculoskeletal structures of, of our bodies. And, um, and, and even you scale up the universe where <laughs> there are, you, can, you can scale it up. But what I found super interesting is that because of, uh, of the fact that you have this tensile network, if you put, um, if you make this tensile network made of elements that are, that can experience the, the tensile forces, you have a sensor essentially distributed in, in this part. You can also actuate your, the bars or the tensile uh, elements uh, by making them short, by shortening or elongating them using different ways depending on what you apply to your forces, whether cables or, or, or the bars. And so you have a muscles embedded in the structure. You can also pass energy. So you, so that's another thing. Typically we think of batteries as something that we add on that later on. Mm -hmm. um, not everybody does that, but often we do that. And so you can also think of storing energy within the some of the elements and distributing, flowing these energies throughout. And so we've been doing research in intensegrity robots. And one of the things we have realized very soon is that most of the research or almost all the research out there uses very simple uh, shapes, um, essentially uh, volumes, um, robots that can crawl and roll made of these shapes. Because, because this sense there, there is no, there is no really guideline for designing articulated robots made out of these structures. And so the approach we take in my lab is a modular approach to distance robots where we have multiple modules that have different types of shapes, different type of deformation where they can accommodate uh, interaction with the environment differently. They can become stiff on command. They can be programmed to do so. And we can connect them together. So we are working on connection strategies to make many of these soft variable stiffness and security modules together. And 
and, and pass energy through this. So it's, this is a work in progress. And, um, mm. um, but I find it very exciting. It's a way of bringing together the, the physical bodies with intelligence. It was a mm. long answer to you. Yeah, it's interesting. Can I just ask you in that point, particularly about the design, because I think, do you think when it comes to the co-design, for example, you have to go for intuition. Do you think it's the right way or we have to go for like optimization, depending on what, what you want to achieve? How do you approach the design process? For example, you mentioned an inspiration from evolution and maybe we need to have a deep understanding what kind of things we need to replicate or for you, what is the right way or the first step to approach a design to understand system? Is it intuitive design at first or how do you approach this design process and bringing also to the material part because it seems there's two parts here, the material part and the design process. And I don't know if you agree that we lack in design methodology when it comes to soft robotics. Yes, so that, that's a very good question. The, the co-design is, is a big it's a big challenge and so the way in which we i'm a big fan of evolutionary approaches um, because not only because uh, they are very powerful way of exploring a complex nonlinear uh, space uh, with multi you can have multi-objective optimization as well if you, you can bring in optimization if you like as well I'm lo although optimization so maybe if you're looking after intelligence is not something we may want to put too much the emphasis on. But um, definitely I'm a big fan of evolutionary approaches. However, um, an evolutionary approach requires a, the possibility of, of testing multiple, multiple designs of bodies and brains. And, and that requires a simulator. And simulating uh, soft bodies or variable bodies with variable stiffness at the interaction with the environment is still a big challenge. There are solutions out there which, which have been proposed that are very good now uh, soft body uh, simulators which are becoming more computationally tractable than they used to be in the past that's definitely very good progress um, at the same time there are novel ways of doing uh, um, of, of modeling of simulating these things so whereby you you use neural networks or artificial intelligence to predict some of the outcome of the simulator some of the interactions between the robot and the environment um, and you use a neural network for doing that prediction uh, instead of simulating using, you know, first principles uh, rules. So, so I think there is a lot of work to be done on the simulator, on, and, but the simulator is necessary if you want to use evolutionary approaches. And, and for that reason, um, we, are, we are just discussing in the lab at the moment how we can simulate these tensegrity robots. There is a beautiful um, uh, NASA consecutive simulator out there, which is, I think, is the most advanced one. But as soon as you start introducing a new, you know, elements with variable stiffness, as our muscles can can display variable stiffness depending on how we stiffen our our bodies, we want to simulate that. Then things become super complicated, or you have the simulator explodes if you if you have certain types of interaction with the environment because there is co-penetration of elements in the mathematical model. So it's not the solution for letting an evolutionary run this, uh, run on on its own days and nights and multiple computers. Still, is still problematic. And here comes what you call you call it intuition-driven design. We don't do it. In, I don't think I'm not a big fan of intuition-driven design. I'm more a, a fan of looking at how nature uh, solves a problem and we do not mimic 
how nature solves the problem. Sometimes we, we do some close reproduction, but more often we don't do that. We just look at the principle and then we try to see how can we capture that principle with the materials and the technology that we have or with the computational strategy, for example, that we can use. Is it optic flow driven or is it more of a, of a neural network that learns by trials and errors? So it's, we are more on the real reinforcement learning or is it more a self-organized neural network or an imitation learning? And what is the strategy? So we, we don't do intuition, we, we try to capture to abstract biology at a certain level. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. But I'm curious to ask you what you think maybe still soft robotics, missing functionalities. Because I think, I don't know how do you see the way we approach the problem. For example, you want to design certain things and why you design what you design. You, you say that you look for evolution, but do you think in general the way we approach the problem in soft robotics or robotics in which basis do you think we have to look for the functionality or achieve that? Do you have any take about that? Does it make sense? That doesn't make sense. This is not maybe because sometimes we come up with solution and it's not really really realistic when it comes to real world application. I don't know if you can comment about that. Okay, there are lots of, um, I, uh, maybe because it's, it's an important question but it has multiple facets. So. When it comes to real world applications, um, I think today we don't have yet the components uh, and the reliability of the components that we have for conventional rigid robots uh, that have been tested and developed uh, for, for decades and have been perfected by the personal computing and the mobile devices industry. We don't have all of that. So we are still exploring a the range of, of, of materials and the range of sensors and scaffolding structures that, that are available out there to, to make uh, our robots soft or at least display variable stiffness. So that's why maybe sometimes we are very, we're not yet there when it comes to, to an application to match the expected torques or the expected forces or the expected the, uh, the granularity of the sensing uh, that, that we see maybe in nature that we would like to capture. But I do not think that is uh, something that, you know, there is something dramatic that we are missing. At least I don't, I don't see, or there, or there are so many things that we are missing that it's not that we have something specific missing. Um, the, however, what I feel is out there, and I'm not the only one to, have to say this, is that we don't have yet a, a library of components and, and now we can bring all these components together as we instead we do have for rigid robots. So today for rigid robots, if you want to make a con, you know what, you know, you want to buy chips or you want to buy sensors, or you want to buy actuators, you go online and there are distributors of different materials, you know your specification batteries, you know your specifications and you just look, put them together. You want to connect them again, there are lots of ways of making cable connectors. You have screws, the, design, the systems, the components are already built in so that you can just connect them. When it comes to soft robots, you know, very few people talk about connection. How do you, we are still mostly, I feel we're still operating in, in the realm of soft robots that are um, monolithic. Maybe it's not a good word, but they are, you know, it's a, it's a completely soft robot or it's, it, it, it's one block, 
And, but if we want to create more complex and articulated robots, maybe with some specialization or division of labor in the different limbs or different parts of the bodies, then we may want to uh, use different materials and different components. Maybe you can have a tensegrity-based spine of a robot and then you have a different type of tendon-driven, for example, actuators. I'm just making up something like that. And then, but how you connect these together, how you can pass the flow information, how you can transmit forces uh, is, is, is still, I think, is not widely studied. And even if you stay at the soft uh, level, just adding multiple layers, uh, soft layers of different consistencies and different properties, mechanical or electrical, and how you keep them um, together, it's a problem because there is some, often there is detachment, it's called delamination in soft robotics, so there is this fatigue and it breaks down. So I think that's where uh, we, that's the reason why soft robotics maybe is not yet up matching the, what we expect in terms of application. But there is a positive mm -hmm. note on this because there are some great application of soft robots out there which are having a lot of success in industry. Think about soft manipulation. There are companies that are very successful, um, including one in the US that make these uh, pneumatic soft actuators, which are now are, are you can find them as an industrial solution out, out there. So, and, and that's one. Now, you know, you may think about other types of soft robots like Paro, uh, this, mm. um, this soft robot that is used for therapeutic, therapeutical um, purposes. It's a very interesting there. It's a beautiful example of you have a soft body with embedded sensors and, and, and minimalistic artificial intelligence that leverages our, uh, our tendency to attribute characteristics mm. of intelligence to a machine. There is this beautiful book by, make a bit of advertising here, but, uh, for Kate Darling, uh, she wrote this book, uh, The New Breed, where she makes the analogy uh, between robots and animals. And she looks at the history of our interaction with animals in the past and from many different perspectives, legal, ethical, uh, interactive. And she, she sees parallels with robotics and she, then she gives guidance of how to design artificial intelligence and maybe physical design uh, of robots uh, for, for designing next generation of robots. And, and then we have a new book that will uh, uh, come out with the Mighty Press um, with my co-author Nicola Mosengo and where we try to project a little bit also where soft robotics and uh, artificial, the new type of artificial intelligence will perhaps translate into applications in 20, 30 years from now. That's wonderful. Yeah. But I'm curious to ask you again in this point, because you mentioned very interesting bar about having kind of library to what kind of material, for example, using multi-material to achieve tougher structure and soft robot, whatever functionality. I'm curious what is holding back th this kind of a study? Because let's be honest, sometimes, I don't know if you agree with that, sometimes there is a tendency to avoid this kind of risk ideas and go for always low risk. And maybe because that you have to grant publication in that case. Do you think that's part, do you see that's part contributing in how we approach the, the point you discussed? Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're touching upon a broader, more general topic in, um, in academic research, which is yeah. Um, yeah. how... On the of robotics as well, yeah. It would be great yes. to have yes. to yeah. So definitely you, you're right in the sense that um, 
what is rewarded today in terms of a scientific career, if you want to do research, is uh, publications, and they must be high quality, and possibly the higher number of high quality publications. Uh, a young researcher has uh, the better uh, it is. And that is problematic because, because sometimes when we are at PhD exams, um, you know, there is a nice story the PhD student saying, but at the end of the day, sometimes people look at, okay, how many publications, did, you know, did, was all this peer review? That's, this, you may tell us a story, but was it peer reviewed? And, and that peer review is very important to assess whether what you contribution we have made or anybody makes is, is important. The problem, however, is that, yeah, sometimes you have to fragment your research questions like four-year research question and PhD number of subtopics. Does that prevent us from tackling big problems, having a long-term perspective? I know, I don't think so. I, mm -hmm. think, uh, I think it is okay uh, to, I think if you, if you look at the, at the span, <laughs> lifespan of, of a PhD project, which is maybe four years in the US, maybe sometimes it's longer than that, I think you, you can tackle big problems. And it is important at some point to show that the progress that you are making makes sense. And, and the best way of checking if it makes sense is just sending it for peer review to a conference, to a journal. If you do it obsessively and you try to gain, I don't know, five, six, 10 publications or more, just because you want to get that number, then it is a problem. And then you oh. may go for low risk approaches. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, yeah. So I don't know if what could be saying is very challenging for you so far, maybe in the project you do. It's kind of counterintuitive. You don't understand why this behavior is happening. Do you have any moments like that? It was counterintuitive or surprising results, yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> not maybe now not. Uh, we don't have counterintuitive results. We have uh, things that don't work as we planned. And, and then we have to go back to the bench and, and uh, redesign this. And I, I give you an example of uh, one of my uh, brilliant, actually, PhD students who um, was working on avian-inspired drones. And they are feathered. So, and, and so that's the element of softness in an otherwise rigid uh, body. Uh, so the wings are super interesting because you have, must have elements that are stiff, sufficiently stiff to withstand the aerodynamic forces required for generating lift to stay in the air. Yeah. At the same time, you must be compliant with wind gust and also with the morphing of the wings. And specifically in my lab, we are looking at the, at, the, at the role of morphing of these wings in achieving the agility that we see in some birds like birds of, of prey. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, my PhD student Enrico Ayanich, he um, developed this beautiful uh, morphing drone with morphing wing and morphing tail. The tail has, plays a very important role in stabilizing the flight or performing agile maneuvers. And at some point he noticed that, however, the rolling of this drone, that means the turn to the one side or the other side, was not as good as expected uh, in the simulator and in the wind tunnel experiments when he was flying out there. And, uh, and he realized that when you scale this design up uh, to make it, because we had to make it larger because the, our goal is also to make it autonomous from a sensory perspective 
sensory motor perspective. I have another PhD student working on this on that topic. But anyway, to, uh, he realized that as he was scaling up to uh, to accommodate this additional mass required to fly, this was not rolling so much so good as well. So he, we went back, or he went back to, to to nature and look at these birds of prey. How do they turn? And it turns out that they they help themselves by twisting the wing uh, to the, the attachment with the body. And that was. And then he implemented, he went back to the bench and he designed a new way of having this additional degree of freedom on, on near, and, and now he's achieving very good results. Actually, today he's out flying to the experiments outdoor. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and that was a very interesting finding because, and again, this shed, shed some light also to how birds fly because biologists cannot um, simply, you know, mm. take a bird, kill a bird, and then make the bird make all sorts of motion. And the bird actually has, uses, tension in the muscles while it flies. So you cannot simply use a bird to understand how it moves the, 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 yeah. the, the wing when it's flying. So it's very interesting also for soft robots to understand how, how birds move their wings to achieve the, the agility they display. Very interesting. So since of course then I have a few questions. Maybe first one, what are things maybe still mysterious for you when you look to evolution? And maybe this is very fascinating that how we can do that, it seemed hard. I don't know if you have an example like that you saw. And I was very inspiring how they can do that. Well, we, in, in the lab, we look at a lot at, uh, we look at, at a number, so in my lab, we look at um, uh, soft robotics in general with, with the application to, there is a lot of application to, to flying machines because they are quite challenging uh, today because they have to carry their own mass. Um, yeah. But we also look at um, at other type of uh, machines like uh, edible machines, mm -hmm. and maybe I'm not sure if I'm answering your question now. But uh, here is the thing: something that evolution did and we cannot do. And we were in a lab meeting about uh, three years ago or so, and uh, one of my former PhD students, actually, I already mentioned his name, Jun Shintake, who is. Tokyo now, mm. assistant professor in Tokyo. We came out of the lab meeting and in the corridor he told me, Dario, we always say that we do bio-inspired robots, but we cannot eat our robots. Instead, biological systems can eat each other. And I thought, okay, this is a joke. <laughs> then I thought more carefully and said, what do you mean, what do you mean? Uh, and, and there was a deep meaning in, in what he meant because um, to make something that is biodegradable and even can provide nutrition to another living system and therefore makes evolution carry on, it's not trivial. So I looked at, uh, we looked with, uh, with June, we looked at, okay, what does, what edible stuff is made of? Fiber, carbohydrates, proteins. What are the, when you look at food, what are the, design principles or the key performance indexes to use this work that says a food is a good food. So it provides nutrition, it, it, it's, uh, you can chew it, it can dissolve, but that's completely different than what a robot is designed for. A robot, we never look at the possibility that it can dissolve in water. Um, the shelf life of a robot is infinite or as long as possible. The shelf life of a food, no, it's not. And it's people you know, don't think of making it, you know. So, Make a long story short, it turns out there is a very interesting uh, challenge there, how we can bring these two worlds together and how can, and, you know, 
first of all, what are, why should we make edible robots? That's also an interesting thing. But just from the perspective of evolution, it turns out for evolution is a no-brainer. It makes machines made out of edible things that generate energy in the environment. We do not do that. And so uh, with June, uh, June actually produced the first uh, attempt to make an edible gripper, uh, which is super interesting. We made nice collaboration with the uh, Lausanne uh, uh, Hospitality School uh, here in uh, Switzerland. Um, and working with uh, researchers there, uh, we figured out a way of manufacturing these grippers so that they, they have the same capabilities of soft grippers that you can buy in the market. But at the end of the day, you can completely eat them. You can drop them in the food. It's no problem, you can eat them. And, and out of that, then we investigated different research avenues and we said, okay, that's a big problem. We cannot tackle alone. So we set up a European project, which has uh, funded now, has been funded. We started the month two weeks ago. It's called the RoboFood. I encourage you to take a look. It's robofood.org, uh, where we have uh, experts in food manufacturing from Wageningen universities, experts in edible electronics from the Italian Institute of Technology, and experts in uh, soft robots like Jonathan Rossiter in Bristol and myself here in Lausanne. And we are now setting out a plan uh, to make these edible robots. The first thing we will do is, as I mentioned earlier, we need to have components that we can use and can connect together that are edible. We can make robots out of them. So what we are looking at now is defining a first library and a method for designing a library of edible components that, that we can use to make, to make these robots. So maybe that's a question about um, when it comes to design on soft robots or robots, yeah, resist damage or have a kind of redundancy or resilience. How do you see so far, maybe in soft robotics, the design mechanism to have redundancy or resilience against uncertain situations? Yeah, yeah. So we often say, uh, we we believe, I think, uh, that uh, soft robots are intrinsic. They are intrinsically robust to interact, more robust than conventional robots to some types of interaction with the environment. Um, or they are capable of withstanding forces better than other robots without harming people, for example. So there is also often this intrinsic claim that, okay, if it is soft, it is more compliant. You can hammer the robot, it yeah. won't break, for example, there are videos out there. But, um, and that's certainly true for some of the applications. You can stretch this stuff and it can still work. Sometimes you can make a cut into this and then it self heals. Um, you can break it in cell fields with it, for example, also working with this variable stiffness thread that you can break them. And then you just apply voltage and again, the cell field and then work again. Mm -hmm. And other people have done work along those lines too. So I think, yes, they are more robust, but at the same time, there is still a point, sometimes a single point of failure in, in these robots. You have, for example, you applied voltage difference too high and when you manufactured the elastic elastomer, there are imperfections. Now you put this, these yeah. layers, and then you, it breaks. And there is, and then there is a short circuit, and then you, yeah. you have to discard it. And I can imagine for other types of technologies, you have sim sim similar single point of failure. But overall, I, I think these soft robots tend to be a little bit more resilient to to damage. Now, as I said earlier, most of these soft robots today are still monolithic structures, so we haven't really explored, explored the realm of distributed, more articulated types of robots, uh, where the connection points will be critical to make to yeah. keep the system functioning. Uh, 
And so that, yeah. that the redundancy there and how do we build them, those connection points, I think is, is super important. Mm -hmm. Great. I don't know, final question. What could be advice was given to you maybe through your career or life and stick to your mind and was life changing advice was given to you and was life changing? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, maybe it's not it's not a single one that I sentence that I could say, but uh, um, a person I uh, I knew from I had a number of very brilliant collaborators and persons and mentors in the past. Mm -hmm. One of those is, was Takashi Gon. It was a uh, was a person where the company applied AI systems in Canada, and uh, he was also interested in research and he set up. Evolution, the first evolution robotics uh, seminar series in, in Tokyo. He attracted a lot of interest also from companies and he was always promoting uh, researchers, uh, including myself. I was lucky to be, to attract his attention and exposing us to, to mainstream researchers and companies. And we were unconventional at that time. And one of the things he was always saying, you know, you have to believe in, in what you do and you don't have to go with the mainstream. And and if you have something brilliant, it will be for many years, people will not care, will not, will not be interested at all. Will, it's, so, and just trust uh, yourself, just carry on. Now it's easy for me to say because I am a full professor and it's more difficult for somebody like I was at that time, actually a PhD student to, to yeah. believe in this, but uh, I think that's what I did. And that's, um, I'm very glad I did that. And, um, I'm very glad I had people who then believed in me and allowed me to carry on uh, in different positions and, and arrive where I am. And I hope that my PhD students are also adventurous and they believe in what they do. At the end of the day, however, there is always the peer review. Uh, there, there's some point what we do has to be checked with reality and we have to be able to convey the, the story, what we have, acknowledge the limitations and, and, mm. and show that we're doing science at the end of the day. So mm. that we have to Confront I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say for the robotics community as we're closing. Any final words you'd like to say? Well, I think this is a great community. I think it is, intellectually speaking, it is the most beautiful things I've ever seen since uh, Bioinspiration or Bioinspired Robotics uh, was out there in the 80s, in the early 80s, beginning of the 90s. Um, soft Robotics has all the elements of Bioinspiration and much more because there is there is material science and, and there is artificial intelligence that comes with it. So it's a great place to be. It's a great community to be. And um, yeah, I, I look forward to the progress in the future. Thank you, Dara. It was so inspiring. And such a have you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.